Hello, this is Pastor John Willingham of Doylestown Presbyterian Church. It's clear these days it's tough to make time. Schedules quickly become busy and calendars suddenly become full. To that end, DPC is excited to now offer this podcast channel, which will allow you to hear a recording of Sunday's sermon from that day's preacher. Whether you listen while taking an evening stroll, driving to and from the grocery store, or anytime you get a free couple of minutes, we hope it can allow for reflection and spiritual growth during your week. We also invite you to visit www.dtownpc.org to learn more about our church, our various ministries, and online giving opportunities. Thank you for tuning in. Last week, we began a focused time in worship on our Matthew 25 initiative, that effort which launches today this series of All Aboard events takes its name from the moment in Scripture when Jesus says, Truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. After careful and prayerful reflection, our session decided that our Matthew 25 effort would focus on joining the effort to dismantle structural racism, in particular, the place where it intersects with poverty. And so in my sermon last week, we focused on the latter part of our calling. Today, we turn to the first portion. And as we do so, I want to share with you some recent results from a survey conducted by the Pew Research Group. This particular study was reported on August 16th, and it opened with these words. A little more than a year after nationwide protests erupted after George Floyd's murder at the hand of the Minneapolis police, the public is deeply divided over how far the nation has progressed in addressing racial inequality and how much further it needs to go. The report went on to say that in a study conducted in July, 53% of Americans said that this new focus on the history of slavery and racism in our country is a good thing. And yet, as you bore down into those numbers a bit further, as the survey allows us to do, one can see that there remains great disparity based on rage on race and one's partisan affiliation. You can find the full report on the Pew website. But there's one question in particular I want to focus on that deals with this whole question of systemic or structural racism. When that question was posed, respondents were given three options for how to respond. First was, while there are many inequities in U.S. laws and institutions, necessary changes can be made by working within the current system. Another one said, because such laws are fundamentally biased against some racial and ethnic groups, most U.S. laws and institutions need to be completely rebuilt. And the third one said, Little or nothing needs to be done in this regard. Now, on that question, 42% 
of white respondents agreed with one of those first two options, while 69% of African-American respondents agreed. The difference was even greater when we look at political affiliation. For among those who identify themselves or lean as democratic, 73% agreed with those first two statements. While among those who self-identify or lean as Republican, only 21% agreed meaning that 79% in that group feel that little or nothing needs to be done. Now, given the fact that our congregation is not diverse racially, and the fact that in the last two presidential elections in Bucks County, the votes were pretty evenly distributed between the Republican and the Democratic nominee, I have no reason to believe that the same results in our congregation would be virtually the same. So given that likelihood, in my view, the question really became one of how is it that we start this conversation? And to do so, we began, as our faith tradition always points us as the starting point, namely, we turn to Scripture. Our reading from the prophet Micah is set in an imagined courtroom in which God really is the one with the complaint. And so just prior to our passage, we can hear God call out the people of ancient Israel because of their unfaithfulness, in particular because of their ingratitude for all that God has done for them over the centuries. In response to that charge, there's this unnamed voice that begins with these words. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before God on high? If that was all that that individual had said, we might have heard it as truly a repentant spirit. And in that era, there was a clearly defined system for sacrifices and offerings pointing to how one might be reconciled to God. And yet when you go ahead and listen to more of what that unnamed individual has to say, I hear almost a sarcastic tone in the options that she or he prescribes. For first, they say, shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Now, the law that Moses brought down from Sinai had spoken of a system, a structure of offering these burnt offerings of an animal to God, and yet they prescribed a calf that was maybe eight days old. So, for this individual to suggest that he's being required to offer a calf a year old, one much more valuable, would have been a suggestion that this complaint is unreasonable. That unnamed voice goes on to say, Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? The Old Testament does tell us that those beloved kings of the past 
David and Solomon had moments when they offered thousands of animals as a sacrifice to God, but the Jewish law required one. And the amount of oil that Moses described was about quarts. So, for this person to say, am I supposed to bring thousands of animals and 10,000 rivers of oil sounds something like a child saying, well, I guess I owe you a gazillion dollars. Lastly, that unnamed voice says, shall I give my firstborn for my transgressions, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? <clears throat> to name that kind of offering at a time when Israel in particular distinguished itself from neighboring countries that practiced human sacrifice was at its heart a way of saying that what God is complaining about is unreasonable. That it is not that big of a deal. What's in response? That it's Micah who answers. As the prophet says to that unnamed voice, he has told you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? Certainly there's many ways that we can interpret those words, but at least part of it suggests to me that what God is saying in that moment is what he really wants is the individual. That the change that God is seeking is a change from within. And our Matthew 25 effort is lifting up the same call. For any conversation that we have about structural or systemic racism must acknowledge the places where there has been clear progress in our land. When the Social Security Act, for instance, was originated in 1935, it excluded domestic workers and those laboring in the fields, which at the time were primarily African Americans. That act has been amended now to include everyone. Ten years later, the GI Bill, when it was passed, provided educational benefits and low mortgage rates for all who had served in the armed forces except for blacks. That racist exclusion has been corrected too. For decades in the South, voting laws required poll taxes or literacy tests that had the practical impact of excluding African Americans and those laws have been corrected. Our effort here acknowledges there has been progress in those areas and others, and yet the challenge remains because of the ones still who make such decisions. For the fact of the matter is that every law, every policy, every guideline, every goal is enforced by human beings which means that there remains the potential for injustice to happen, even if the standards say it should not. 
which proclaims that really this work that we're talking about is one that needs to happen from within. Robert Woodson, in his book, Lessons from the Least of These, uh, a publication that literally takes its name from the same scriptural verse that is the origin of Matthew 25, he argues that the way to bring about real structural change in troubled communities is from within. That the best way to make progress is not to pour in dollars or outside experts who come in and take over, but rather to ally with and equip those who are within those communities, who have experienced the same kinds of hardships and have overcome them. He says this, America must recognize and expand on indigenous self-help neighborhood programs. The originators of these self-help programs have unique first-hand knowledge of the problems and resources within their communities. They have established track records for solving social problems by motivating their communities to develop innovative solutions. They are the quiet heroes, Woodson says, working within our inner cities transforming lives one by one through the redemption of Christ and fellowship with one another. Our New Testament reading proclaim, offers this theological backing for the same kind of approach. For in it, Paul is talking about how God chose a different means to be reconciled to the world in sending Jesus here. For at the moment of Jesus' birth and throughout his ministry, there was still this system, this structure within Judaism that the way to be reconciled to God was through prescribed offerings and to carry them out as they had been delineated. Paul is talking to the Corinthians about how with Jesus's coming into the world, with his death and resurrection, that something has happened in terms of God's plan. That while there had been tweaks in those sacrifice systems over the years, that ultimately they had not proved to be lasting, and so God has now decided upon a different way. So if anyone is in Christ, Paul says, there's a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. All this is from God, who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and given us the ministry of reconciliation. Paul is proclaiming in those words that God knew that those old structures, those old systems, had not ended acts of injustice, either between heaven and earth or between human beings. And so God had made the very clear decision, after reconciling us to himself through Christ, of calling upon all who follow Jesus 
of assuming that vital work. And to do so, even while knowing of the imperfect vessels to which that assignment has been given. When I was a junior in high school, public schools in my Georgia community were four years into court-ordered integration. Despite the fact that the Brown versus Board education ruling of the Supreme Court had happened nearly 20 years earlier, up until that point, the schools in my community continued to be segregated entirely by race. That systemic, that structural shift happened the summer in between my sixth and seventh grade year of school. And as I look back on that whole period, yes, there were moments, I think, that were certainly uncomfortable for me. And yet, I know that my African-American classmates experienced something far more dramatic. And there's one moment that stands out. For it was during that year that an African-American family moved into the house diagonally across from our own. The father was retired military. I'm guessing he had completed his service at nearby Fort Benning. And as best I could tell, things started out well. Then I began to hear whispers of things that had happened against them, of a brick being thrown through a window in their house, of the trash cans being overturned in their yard, of racial epithets being shouted out as cars raced by at all hours, and then last, of how someone during the night came with a gas can and outlined a cross in the grass and then set it aflame. To no surprise, and as the right decision, that family soon moved. I've always carried a great sense of guilt about that whole series of events, not because I was the perpetrator, for I wasn't, but because I learned who had. It was a classmate of mine who bragged about it in lunch one day at school. And what did I do with that information? Nothing. I didn't express my dismay to them. I didn't tell my mother, who was a teacher in that same high school, nor did I inform the principal. I didn't talk to my youth leaders about it. I don't remember even bringing it up with my friends. I did nothing in the face of that crime against an innocent family when speaking up might have brought about justice. That memory and personal failing will always be with me. I can't change the past, of course, but it is that moment that fuels my passion for our Matthew 25 effort. For I'm not looking for us as a congregation to be on the front line of every march that happens in this community or beyond, nor am I looking for us to have some banner in our churchyard 
that espouses the latest wording that we hear in the fight against racial injustice. I'm not looking for us to come up with a list of structures or institutions that need to be changed and then provide a place for you every Sunday with the addresses and phone numbers of those in charge. I'm not looking for this whole time to be one that ultimately evokes only guilt in you over things that you have done or moments when you were silent in the face of injustice. That, none of those things are my goals for this. Instead, my prayer is that this will be a time when we equip you for the places that you already have influence in our world, in the classroom, and on that scholarship committee, in the workplace, and in the jury room, in those conversations with neighbors as you're walking down the street, and yes, in the cafeteria at your high school. For I am convinced that those are the places that we had the best chance of making a difference. And those are the places where I want you to be equipped to respond and to accept that call for the most basic reason of all. Namely, that we have been given this ministry of reconciliation. You and I and have been given that task by God, the maker of heaven and earth and of all humankind. Let us pray. We give thanks, O oh God, for the gifts that you have given us, for the opportunities that we have to learn and to grow and to act. We pray that you will bless and guide our Matthew 25 effort, that it might help us to continue to transform this world in the ways that you have intended from the beginning. For it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us on your journey of faith. Don't forget to check out www.dtownpc.org to explore all the ways DPC strives to be a bridge for Christ and a beacon of his love.